scripture reading this morning? Billy? the question of who are we? Uh, it's a question that I would think that most of us have at some time at least thought about, and if not, hopefully this morning you'll think about. Uh, but as we think about that question of, of who are we, ultimately at the root and at the core, who are we as, as individuals and as human beings? Am I just uh, a pastor? Is that who I am? I'm a pastor. Or am I just a husband uh, to Jasmine? Am I just a father? Am I just a son? Am I, am I a citizen of the United States of America? All these things are true, but at the core, who am I? And who are you at your root? So, so that yes, you could give maybe 10 or 15 different things that, that would say, well, I'm these things, this is what I do, uh, this is what I, my occupation is, this is what my family status is. But at the root, up under all of those things... Who are we? Who are you? And that's a very important question to answer because the way in which you answer that question will determine the way in which you live your life. The things you do and the way in which you live your life. For example, let's say that if I answer that question of who I am, 
based upon at the core of saying, well, who I am at the core is I am a husband. Well, what happens if I cease to become a husband? What happens if Jasmine passes away? The root of who I am is taken away. But if we find our root in something that is more eternal, then it will provide stability uh, for our lives. And that's what Paul is dealing with in this passage as he's getting to the core of, of who we are as people, particularly in the context of who we are in relation to God. And it's a, a great passage because as it looks at the gospel, as it looks at redemption, it shows, it shows the role of God the Father, it shows the role of God the Son, and it shows the role of, of God the Spirit. And we're going to see as we look through this passage that uh, God the Father appoints things, uh, God the Son accomplishes things, and God the Spirit uh, applies these things in our life. Uh, so let's look at this passage and, and we'll get into those things of what the Trinity does, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit when we get to verse 4. But before we get to verse 4, Paul answers this question of who we are in relation to before Christ and who we are after Christ. And it is in many ways a rehashing of what he's already said in chapter 3. That he's continuing this argument of, of saying that, that you are either this way or you're either that way. Either you are in some ways a slave to sin or you are either a slave to Christ. And he goes on, he says these things in the opening verses. He gives this great illustration of talking about this heir and saying that, that an heir and a slave are the same when they're children. Because he's saying, you know, imagine a situation where you have this estate, this large estate, and a child is born into uh, this estate, and, and let's say he's the oldest son, and he will one day inherit all of these things, all of this land, the animals, the, the financial uh, success of the father, all these things the child will inherit. But he's saying when the child is still a child, that he's no different than a slave. And that, yes, one day he will have access to these things, but he doesn't have any access to them now because he's 10 years old or 11 years old. So he doesn't have the authority to go and do what he pleases with the land. He doesn't have the authority to go and do what he pleases with the money. And he actually has these tutors and these, these guardians over him. So that in many ways, he's no different than the slave. And so, but he's like this until, what he says in verse 2, until the date that is set by his father. And then he applies it to us in the spiritual sense, where he says in verse 3, he says, in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. So what Paul is saying here is that we like this, this, this illustration that he's giving. He's applying it to the gospel. And he's saying that before Christ... That we were slaves to the elementary principles of the world. So he's talking about here, from, from chapter 3, he was talking about this language of being in bondage to the law. To where God has given us the law, and that the law enslaves us. That it, that it holds us captive. And that Paul is saying that in some ways we are, not in some ways, but in reality, that we are enslaved to these things. Now what he's talking about when he says elementary principles... He would say, well, that, that seems like he, he's, or some of your translations may say, elemental, elementary uh, uh, spirits of the world, so these demonic powers. And if that's the case, then how can God's law, which is good, be used by Satan to do evil? 
But the reality is that yes, God's law is good. God's law comes from His character and it's perfect. But that Satan does use the law to do bad things, to do evil things, to do things that are contrary to God's purpose. So when we look at what happens with the law, one of three things usually happens when people are dealing with the law. One is that sometimes people will will look at it and they will say, well, look at all these things that I've done and they will seek to, to justify themselves. So you can look at your life and again evaluate it and say, well, most of these things I do. I'm a good person. I pay my taxes, I tithe, I come to church, I'm here on Sunday. All these things that we've been talking about week after week that are, that are aspects of the law that we try to do to earn our righteousness. And that's what some people do. And then others will, will take the law and, and Satan will, will use the law to turn them to despair so that they will recognize that yes, they are sinful. That yes, I have transgressed against God. Yes, I have failed against God. Yes, I have rebelled against Him. Yes, I am worthy of death. But that's where they stop. And Satan uses the law to push them into despair where they don't see any hope. But the purpose of the law for God is to push us to Christ. To see that yes, we are in despair, but that yes, Christ is the solution to the despair that we're in. And so Paul is saying that before Christ came, before the fullness of time that he talks about in verse 4, that we are slaves to sin. That all of us, at one point in our life, if you're a Christian today, were a, was a slave to a sin. You were a slave to Satan. That you, instead of following God's word, you were following Satan's commandments and Satan's laws. And so that you are no different from Eve and Adam. That when they rebelled against God, that they listened to the voice of Satan. They listened to his lies. They listened to his deceit. And so that when we sin and when we rebel against God, we are no different. That we are listening to the lies of Satan. That we are listening to the deceit of Satan. And therefore we are enslaved by these spirits of the world. But the good news comes in verse 4. And this is where we see the work of God the Father, the work of the Son, and the work of the Spirit. Verse 4 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. So the first thing that we see is that God appoints things to happen. And particularly in this context, He appoints redemption. So that Paul is saying in the fullness of time that Jesus didn't just randomly come. That it wasn't just a random set of events. But that it was in the perfect timing that God had ordained. And you say, what does that mean? Why was it the fullness of time? You could think of a lot of different things. But think about the context and, and, the, and this culture in which Jesus was born into. The Roman Empire was spread all over that part of the world. The Romans had done great things to, to unify different cultures. They had built roads that were going to all these different places. There was the Greek language that was unifying all these different cultures and societies and people groups. And so that for the first time in history, there was the ability for things to travel across land as never before. So that's just one example of how it was in the fullness of time. And another example would be that that in God's wisdom, He had prepared the nation of Israel to receive Christ. Now obviously the whole nation did not receive Him, but there were many, there were thousands of Jews who accepted the message of the Gospel and repented and believed in Him and confessed Him as the Messiah. 
So that in the fullness of time that Jesus came, that it was appointed by God, and that God sent forth His Son, that that Jesus' coming was a direct result of God sending Him forth. So that, that when we think about the Trinity, and you have the Father, the Son, the Spirit, you don't have this... This concept that, that, that the Father is doing something over here, that the Son's doing something here, and that the Spirit's some, doing something over here, and if they happen to, to work together, then that's the way it is. But that's not the way it is. What we see here from Paul is Paul is saying that clearly the coming of Christ was a direct result of Jesus saying that I am sending my Son. I am sending Him. Not out of obligation, not because I'm required to, but because I recognize that my people are enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. That I recognize that my people are in bondage under the law. I recognize that they are captive, that they are held hostage by the law in their sin. I recognize that they are in a hopeless position and that they are unable to save themselves and they're not willing to save themselves, that they can't save themselves, that they are in a hopeless state. So God is saying that I am sending my son. That people weren't requesting it. People weren't dictating to God what to do. But that God in His love and in His grace is sending the son. Sending the son to do what God has appointed for him to do. And what is it that God has appointed for Him to do? What is it that the Son will accomplish when He is sent? Notice what verse 4 and 5 say. It says that the Son is born of a woman, born under the law, to do what? To redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So there's two things that the Son is going to accomplish. The first one is He's going to redeem us, and the second one is that we are going to be adopted as sons. Now what does the concept of redemption carry with it. If someone needs to be redeemed, what are you assuming? And are they in a good position or a bad position? A bad position. Someone who doesn't have any problems doesn't need to be redeemed. This is why the gospel is so beautiful. And that I'm afraid that oftentimes in southern culture that we do the opposite of this... That when we become Christians, we, we have this, this air about us. That we are this, these wonderful people. That we are these righteous people. That we have everything together. That our marriages are perfect. That our children are perfect. That our houses are perfect. That our jobs are perfect. That we don't do anything wrong. And we like to put up this, this window or these walls and this impression that because we, we're Christians, that we don't have any problems and everything works fine for us. But what that does is it sends a message to non-believers and to people who are struggling with sin and being more honest about their sin that, that you hear this all the time from people. Well, I can't go to church because, you know, I just don't have everything together. You just don't know what I've done. I, I can't go to church. You know, preacher, I've been divorced. Or, or preacher, you know, I, I've cheated on my wife. Or preacher, you just don't, my kids are a wreck. All these things that that we think about, we think, well, people know this about our lives, so I can't come to church. And that is unfortunate. That is saddening that people would have that impression about the church. Because who is the church? 
It's God's people who have been redeemed. Redeemed from what? Redeemed from our sin. So if there's anybody in the world who should be honest about sin, it should be Christians. That Christians should be more forthcoming about our sin than anybody else. Because we recognize that one of the prerequisites of being a Christian is being a wretched sinner. And unfortunately, most of us, or a lot of us, some of us, I don't know, have never come to that point to where we're recognizing that we are wretched sinners who need to be redeemed. But instead we see that well, I have everything together. God's so proud of me. Look at my life. Look at what I've done. And, it, and it's just salvation by works. And it's offensive to the gospel. And it turns people off to Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Himself said what? I did not come to save the righteous. So this morning, if you think you have everything together, if you think your life is perfect, you think God's so proud of you, guess what? You don't need Jesus. And so you don't need to be here. It's a waste of your time. The people that need to be here are people who need Jesus. Are people who need to be redeemed from sin. Are people who have failed as a father, who have failed as mothers, who have failed as husbands and wives, who failed as citizens because we, we lose our temper, because we, we have bad thoughts, because we do things, because we lie and steal and cheat and lust and we're greedy. These things that, that we all struggle with. That God has sent Christ to redeem us and to not be honest about our sin is to deny the chief reason why Jesus came, which is to deal with our sin. He came because I am a sinner, not because I'm not a sinner. And it's important that we understand that and that we're honest about that and and that we're not so diligent to try to protect the dark secrets of our life. Now that doesn't mean you have to tell everybody all the things going on wrong in your life. But it does mean that in the context of a church, that if there's anywhere that someone should have the ability to be honest about sin, it should be in the church. Because when Jesus says that not to judge others, one of the most misinterpreted verses in the world that you hear all the time, anytime someone says, well, you can't do that, that's wrong, so, oh, well, Jesus said don't judge. That's not what Jesus is talking about. What Jesus is talking about is in the context of brothers and sisters in Christ, for us thinking that we are more righteous than someone else because we didn't commit the sin that they committed. And therefore, we level judgment against them because of something they did and we didn't do it and we think we're better than them. So I can look at that person and say, well, well they're divorced. Well, I've been married to Jasmine, you know, or, or you know, I, I, we're never going to get, I'm not going to divorce her, I'm never going to leave her. Well, I just can't believe that person did that. But at the same time, I'm guilty of pride, for one, for even thinking that. And there are these numerous other sins that I'm guilty of that maybe he's not guilty of. But the point is that we all are sinners before God who need redemption. And therefore, we have to be careful 
of how we portray ourselves and our families because it does send a message to the community. So if I took a poll from people that lived around this area, what kind of church would they think Redbud is? Would they see the people at Redbud as people who think that they're better than everybody else because they go to church? Or would they see people at Redbud as humble, thankful sinners who have been saved by grace? What kind of message do we send to people? Is it a welcoming message that just as Jesus welcomed the most unrighteous, that we too will welcome the most unrighteous? Because that's why Jesus came to redeem those who need redemption. So Jesus accomplished this. How does He accomplish it? Jesus says that He sent forth His Son. Notice that He sends forth it's God's Son in verse four that He's born of a woman and He's born of a, under the law. So that all the requirements that were needed for a Savior were met. Number one, it had to be God. A man could not just... An ordinary man can't save us. I can't save you. You can't save me. It had to be God Himself. So, so that when Jesus came, that this is as, he, as the author of Hebrews says, that it was the fullness of God that was pleased to dwell in Jesus. But at the same time, He was born of a woman. So that yes, He was fully God, but yes, He was also fully man, that He was one of us, that He was tempted like us, that He lived like us, that that just as He came out, as we came out of our mother's womb, Jesus came out of the womb. You know, we have that, uh, the song, was it Away in the Manger? Uh, I don't know all the words, but at some point in the song it says, no no crying, how does it go? What, what, What is it? Yeah, no crying He made. Uh, my guess is that's wrong. My guess is that Jesus did cry. Because what do babies do when they come out of the womb? They cry. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? It's a good thing. It shows that they're breathing, that they're alive. Is it sinful that the babies cry when they come out? No, it's not. So Jesus was a normal baby. He burped. You know, he had bad diapers. All those things that we... Often don't we don't think about well yes this is the son of God but at the same time he was born of a woman he was a human being that he that he came out of the womb he didn't know how to talk he just cried he wanted to be fed all these things that, that happened with babies it happened with Jesus yet at the same time he was under the law he was born of a Jewish woman he was a Jewish man and he was under the Jewish law. But the difference between Jesus and us is that the law holds us captive because we can't fulfill it. Because we could say we meet two of those requirements. That yes, we're born of a woman and we're born under the law. We don't meet the third requirement of where we are God's son. So the fact that Jesus is God's son gives him the ability to fulfill the law. So that every requirement of the law he met. He didn't transgress at any point. He was perfect. No sin in his life or in his thought. So that he was righteous. He was a man and he was divine. 
All these things giving Him the ability to be the Redeemer. To rescue us. Because He had no sin, therefore He could bear my sin. He could have victory over death because He was more than a man. He could die because He was a man. But the grave could not hold Him because He was more than a man. He was God in flesh. And therefore, He has the ability to redeem us. And as verse 5 says, that under redemption that we might receive adoption as sons. Now think about this for a second. This illustration doesn't even begin to do justice to what has taken place in the Gospel. But imagine yourself in a poverty-stricken situation. You don't have any food. Your parents can't buy clothes. You don't have shoes. It's just it's as bad as it gets. And someone like Bill Gates comes along, picks you up, takes you to the courthouse. Your parents aren't alive anymore. Says, I'm going to adopt this child. He signs the papers and that you become his child. His son. An heir of his inheritance. And that's an earthly illustration that doesn't have eternal significance. But our condition before Christ was what? Wretched sinners who were captive to the law. Enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And that through Christ, Christ has redeemed us. And that through that redemption, God has adopted us as sons through faith in Christ. And the way this is applied is in verse 6 and 7, where we see that because we are sons, God has sent the Spirit. So He sent the Son to accomplish redemption, and now He's sending the Son, the Spirit to apply redemption. He says that He sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so that you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Oftentimes, there are some different denominations and other sister churches that will say, well, if you're a true Christian, that you have these demonstrations or manifestations of the Spirit. Well, you have to speak in tongues. You have to do miracles or prophecy, all these different things. What does Paul say that the proper application of the Spirit in your life should be? He says that if you have the Spirit, then what are you going to do? You're going to cry, Abba, Father. So that the first application of the Spirit in your life is what? Prayer to God. Praise to God saying, You are my Father. Praise You for for rescuing me, for redeeming me, for adopting me. So the sign of genuine salvation is not crying. The sign of genuine salvation isn't clapping your hands. The sign of genuine salvation isn't speaking in tongues. The giant sign of genuine salvation isn't being the nicest guy here or the nicest woman here. The sign of genuine salvation isn't being able to to articulate certain things in the Scriptures. The sign of genuine salvation is the place of the Spirit in your life and that is seen through you confessing with your mouth and believing with your heart that Jesus is Lord and that God is your Father. 
and saying, Abba, Father. This, this, this word meaning an intimate relationship. That no longer am I enslaved to the elementary spirits of the world. No longer am I held captive by the law. But now I am a son of God. That yes, I did all these things. I did all these sins and I'm continuing to struggle with sin. But the truth is, is that Christ has redeemed me. And the Spirit testifies to that in me. And so that part of the promise of Abraham is the Spirit, as Paul says in Galatians 3.14, that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. So that God has appointed that redemption take place for His people. And that redemption has been accomplished through the work of the Son, Jesus Christ. And then that redemption is applied in our hearts through the work of the Spirit, to where we testify together as one people each with our own mess of sin, but saying we who were once not sons have become sons of the Lord God Almighty. And that should give us a tremendous amount of hope when we answer the question of who are we? So at my core, who am I? At my core, I'm not a pastor. At my core, I'm not a husband. At my core, I'm not a father. At my core, I'm not a son of my earthly parents. At my core, I am a son of God and therefore an heir of the inheritance of eternal life. So the way that that should be fleshed out in in how we live is this. If your core is something other than the fact that you are a son of God then it can be taken away. If the core of who you are is a husband, what happens when your wife is taken from you? If the core of who you are is a wife, what happens when your husband is taken away from you? If the core of who you are is a parent, what happens when your children are taken away from you? If the core of who you are is an employee, what happens when you lose your job? At the core of who you are as a son, what happens when you lose your parents? All those things will pass away. But what will not pass away is the promise of inheritance of eternal life through faith in Christ. So when that defines who I am, when these other things happen, so if I lose my children, will I grieve? Yes, I will grieve because I love them, I care for them. And I will grieve until my last breath or until Jesus comes back. But it won't shake who I am because at the core of who I am, I am a son of God through faith in Christ. And that cannot be taken away. Once we are adopted by God, we cannot become unadopted by God. So where is your identity at? Who are you? What defines who you are as a person? Are you enslaved to the elementary spirits of the world? Or are you a child of God, an heir of the promised inheritance? Let's go to the Lord in prayer.